Chapter 8, Part 1 of The Ghost Camp. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Ghost Camp by Rolf Balderwood. Chapter 8. The return drive was made in slightly better time than the morning journey. The English mail phaeton of the Monsieur Boyer with a pair of exceptional trotters taking the lead. The mounted contingent followed at a more reasonable pace, as they had from time to time to put on a spurt to come up with the drag, harness work as is known to all horsemen, keeping up a faster average pace than saddle. However, everybody arrived safely at the hall in excellent spirits, as might have been gathered from the cheerful, not to say hilarious, tone which the conversation had developed. Mr. Blunt, in especial, whose ordinary optimism had reasserted sway, told himself that, with one exception, never had he enjoyed such a delicious experience of genuine country life. There was no more time available than sufficed for a cup of afternoon tea and the imperative duty of dressing for dinner. At this important function, the mistress of the house had exercised a wise forecast, since, when the great table in the dining-room, duly laid, flowered, and decored with napery, met the eyes of the visitors, it was seen that at least double as many guests had been provided for as had assembled at breakfast. Dick, said the host to Mr. Derricker, Mrs. Claremont says you are to take the vice-chair. You'll have her on your right and Miss Allen on your left. Wisdom and beauty, you see. So you can't go wrong. Philip, my boy, you're to take the right centre, with Joe Boyer and Miss Fotheringay on one side, Laura and Mr. Blunt on the other. Jack Fotheringay fronts you with any young people he can get. I dare say he'll arrange that. You must forage for yourselves. Now, I can't pretend to do anything more for you. I dare say you'll shake down. So they did. There was much joking and pleasant innuendo as the necessary shufflings were made. Brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, having to be displaced and provided with neighbours not so closely related. Nothing was lacking as far as the material part of the dinner was concerned. A famous saddle of mutton, home-grown from a flock of Southdowns kept in the park, descended from an early English importation. A grand roast turkey, upon which the all-accomplished Mr. Derricker operated with practised hand, as did the host upon the Southdown, expatiating at intervals upon the superiority of the breed for mutton purposes only. The red currant jelly was a product of the estate, superintended in manufacture by one of the daughters of the house trout from the river, black duck from the lake, equal to his canvas-back relative of the southern states, a haunch too of red deer venison, Tasmanian-born and bred. For the rest, everything was well cooked, well served, and excellent of its kind. Worthy of such viands was the appetite of the guests, sharpened by the exercise and a day spent chiefly in the open air, the keen, fresh island atmosphere. The host's cellar, famous for age and quality in more than one colony, aided the general cheerfulness, so that if any of the fortunate guests at the memorable dinner had aught but praise for the food, the wines, the company, or the conversation, they must have been exceptionally hard to please. So thought Mr. Blunt, who by and by joined the ladies, feeling much satisfied with himself and all the surroundings. Not that he had done more than justice to the host's claret, Madeira, and super-excellent port. He was on all occasions a temperate person, 
but there is no doubt that a few glasses of undeniably good wine under favourable conditions, such as the close of an admirable dinner, with a dance of more than common interest to follow, may be considered to be an aid to digestion, as well as an incentive to a cheerful outlook upon life, which tends, physicians tell us, to longevity, with health of body and mind. It happened, fortunately, to be a moonlit night. The day had been one of those of the early spring, which, warm, even hot in the afternoon, presage, in the opinion of the weather-wise, an early summer, which prediction is chiefly falsified. But while this short glimpse of paradise is granted to the sons of men, no phrase can more truly describe it. Cloudless days, warmth without oppressive heat, tempered by the whispering ocean breeze, beseeching the permission of the wood-nymphs to invade their secret haunts, all flower and leaf and herb-life responsive to the thrilling charm, the witchery of the sea-voices. Such had been the day, that the drives and rides through the green woodland, the hill-parks, the meadow-fields, had been absolutely perfect, all admitted. Now the evening air seemed to have gained an added freshness. When the French windows of the ballroom were thrown open, it was predicted that many a couple would find the broad verandas, or even the dry and shaded garden paths, irresistibly enticing after the first few dances. Such indeed was the case. What with accidental and invited guests, the number had been increased to nearly twenty couples, all young, enthusiastic, fairly musical, and devoted to the dance. The music indeed had been an anxiety to the hostess. The piano was a fine instrument, luckily in perfect tune. Half the girls present could play dance music effectively, but another instrument or two would be such an aid and support. Then inquiry was made. Chester of Oakland's was a musical amateur. The violin was his favourite instrument. He was so good-natured that he could be counted upon. Then there was young Grant of Benjarrick, who played the cornet. So messengers with polite notes were dispatched on horseback, and both gentlemen, being luckily found at home, were secured. The band was complete. Mr. Blunt, with proper precaution, had secured the hand of Miss Laura Claremont at dinner for two waltzes, a polka, and the after-supper galop. Among her sisters and the late arrivals, he had filled his card. These had been written out by volunteer damsels during the after-dinner wait. He had therefore no anxiety about his entertainment for the evening. No time was lost after the conclusion of the dinner. The young ladies from Cranston and Deepdean had, of course, brought the necessary evening wear with them. Mr. Blunt's English war paint had been stored in Melbourne while he was learning something about goldfields and cattle lifting, this last involuntarily. He was accoutred proper, and as such not troubled with anxiety about his personal appearance. The boyers, of course, were resplendent in the very latest fashion. As to canonicals, the other men were fairly up to the standard of British evening toggery, and for the few who were not, allowances were made, as is always the case in Australia. People can't be expected to carry portmanteau about with them, especially on horseback, and as they were among friends, they got on quite as well in the matter of partners as the others. It certainly was a good dance. The music kept going nobly. The young lady at the piano was replaced from time to time, but the male musicians held on till supper-time without a break. When that popular distraction was announced, half an hour's interval for refreshments was declared, after which a good-natured damsel stole in and indulged the insatiable juniors with a dreamy, interminable waltz. Then the two men recommenced with the leading lady amateur, 
and a polka of irresistible swing and abandonment soon filled the room. Certainly a dance in the country in any part of Australia is an object lesson as to the vigour and vitality of the race. All Australian girls dance well. It would seem to be a natural gift. Chiefly slender, lissom, yet vigorous in health and sound in constitution, they dance on, fleet-footed and tireless, as the fabled nymphs and oreads of ancient Hellas. Hour after hour passed, still unwearied, unsated, were the dancers, until the arrival of the soup suggested that the closure was about to be applied. But the dawn light was stealing over the summit of the mountain range when the last galop had come to an end, and a few couples were by way of cooling themselves in the veranda or the garden paths. Here and at this hour Mr. Blunt found himself alone with Laura Claremont, who had indeed, in spite of faltering maiden remonstrance, completed her fifth dance with him. He was not an unstable, indiscriminate admirer, least of all a professional trifler with the hearts of women, but he had been strongly attracted, perhaps interested would be the more accurate word, by her quiet dignity, conjoined with refinement and high intelligence. She had read largely, and formed opinions on important questions, with greater thoroughness than is the habit of girls generally. Without being a recognised beauty, she had a striking and distinguished appearance. Her dark hair and eyes, the latter large and expressive, the delicate complexion for which the women of Tasmania are noted, in combination with a noble figure and graceful shape, would have given her a foremost position by looks alone in any society. The expression of her features was serious rather than gay, but when the humorous element was invoked, a ripple of genuine mirth spread over her countenance, the display of which added to her modest yet alluring array of charms. Such was the woman with whom Blunt had been thrown temporarily into contact for the last few days, and this night had shown him more of her inward thoughts and feelings, unveiled as they were by the accidents of the dance and the driving party, than he had ever dreamed of. Returning to the ballroom, the final adieus were made, and as he pressed her yielding hand, he felt, or was it fancy, an answering clasp. On the following day he had arranged to leave for Hobart, as he expected to deal with propositions lately submitted for the amalgamation of the original prospecting claim with those adjoining, thus to include a larger area upon which to float a company to be placed upon the London market with an increased number of shares. This had been done at the suggestion of Mr. Trigonwell, whose energetic temperament was constantly urging him to cast about for improved conditions of management and a more profitable handling of the great property which kind fortune had thrown into their hands. "'What is the sense,' he had asked in his last letter from the mine, "'of going on in the slow, old-fashioned way, "'just turning out a few thousand ounces of silver monthly "'and earning nothing more than a decent income, "'this fabulously rich ore body lying idle, so to speak, "'for want of organisation and enterprise. "'The specimens already sent home "'have prepared the British investors "'for the flotation of a company.' of which a large proportion of the shares will be offered to the public. I propose to call a meeting of the shareholders in number one and two, north and south, and submit a plan for their consideration at once. With our property thrown in, we can increase the shares to 500,000 one-pound shares, resuming 100,000 paid-up original shares from the prospectors. You and I, Herbert and Clark, pull the lot and put them before the public, allotting so many to all applicants before a certain day, 
after which the share allotment list will be closed. With the increased capital, we can then carry out and complete such improvements as are absolutely necessary for the working of the mine on the most productive scale, ensuring a return of almost incredible profits within a comparatively short period. In a series of years, the price of silver may fall, the money market, in the event of European wars, become restricted, and in fact the future, that unknown friend or enemy to all mundane affairs, may blight the hopes and expectations which now appear so promising. Everything is favourable now. The mine, the output, the market. Money easy, machinery available on fair terms. But we don't know how soon a cloud may gather. A storm, financial or political, may burst upon us. The directors in the great Comstock mine in America looked at things in that light, doubled their capital, quadrupled their plant, built a railway, and within five years banked dollars enough to enable the four original prospectors, I knew Flood and Mackay well, worked with them in fact, when we were all poor men, to become and remain millionaires to the end of their lives. Meanwhile giving entertainments and building palaces which astonished all Europe and America as well, a more difficult matter by far. Now what do we want, you will ask, for all this development, this Arabian Nights treasure house? I say, and I am talking strict business, that we must have, presuming that the great Tasmanian Proprietary Comstock and Associated Silver Mines Company Limited comes off, and the shares will be over-applied for twice over, what do we want, I repeat? A battery with the newest inventions and improvements, a hundred stamps to begin with. It may be, of course, increased. We shall provide for such a contingency. Secondly, we must have a railway from the mine to the port, to carry our men, materials, supplies generally. We can't go back to this Peruvian mode of transit carrying, on men's backs, at a frightful waste of time and money. We can't afford the time. It's not a question so much of money as of time, which is wasting money at compound interest. We want a wharf at Strawn, and a steamer of our own to take the ore to Callao. She'll pay for herself within the year. Is that all? I hear you asking with your cynical drawl which you affect. I know you, when you're most interested. No, sir. As we all learnt to say in the States, the best comes last. We want a first-class American mining manager, a real boss, chock full of scientific training from Freiburg, practical knowledge gathered from joining the first crowd at Sutter's Mill, and more important than all, the knack of keeping a couple of thousand miners of different creeds, countries and colours, all pulling one way, and him keeping a cool head in strikes and other devilries that's bound to happen in every big mine in the world, especially when she's doing a heap better than common. See, his price is £5,000 a year, not a cent less, if you want the finished article. Here Mr. Tregonwell's fiery eloquence, albeit confined to cold pen and ink, led him into the mining American dialect, so easy to acquire, so difficult to dislodge, which he had picked up in his early experiences. In the class with which he had chiefly associated in earlier years, and to which he belonged in right of birth, he could be as punctiliously accurate in manner and speech as if he had never quitted it. With a certain reluctance, as of one committing himself to a voyage upon an unknown sea, his more prudent but less practical partner gave a guarded consent to these daring propositions, premising, however, that the company must be complete in legal formation and the shares duly allotted 
before a cheque was signed by Frampton, Tregonwell and Company, in aid of operations of such colossal magnificence. Mr. Blunt excused himself from accepting a pressing invitation to remain another week at this very pleasant reproduction of English country-house life, on the plea of urgent private affairs, but he acceded to Mr. Derricker's suggestion that he should stay a night with him at Holmby, on the way to Hobart, where he would undertake to land him an hour or two before the coach could arrive. This was a happy conjunction of business and pleasure, against which there was no valid argument. So with many regrets by guest and entertainers, and promises on the part of the former to return at the earliest possible opportunity, he after breakfast started in Mr. Derricker's dog-cart, from the hospitable precincts of Hollywood Hall. Holmby, the well-known headquarters of the sporting magnates of the island, was reached just within the light, though, as the road was exceptionally good, metalled, bridged, and accurately graded all through, the hour of arrival was not of great consequence. Mr. Derricker was a bachelor, and had mentioned something about bachelor's fare and pot-luck generally, to which Mr. Blunt, feeling equal to either fortune, had made suitable reply. Rather to his surprise, however, as his host had driven round to the stables, they saw grooms and helpers busy in taking out the team of a four-in-hand drag. The equipage and appointments arrested his attention, and caused him to utter an exclamation. They constituted, indeed, an uncommon turnout. An English-built coach, such as the four-in-hand and the coaching clubs produce on the first day of the season, for the annual procession, so anxiously awaited, so enthusiastically watched, complete with every London adjunct, from hamper to horn, etc. The horses had just been detached, and were, at Mr. Derricker's order, detained for inspection. Four flea-bitten greys, wonderfully matched, and sufficiently large and powerful to warrant their easy action in front of so heavy a drag as the one in which they had been driven over. Their blood-like heads and striking forehands, not less than their rounded back ribs and powerful quarters, denoted the fortunate admixture of the two noblest equine families, the Arab and the English thoroughbred. Of size and strength they had sufficient for all or any harness work, while their beauty and faultless matching would have graced any show-ground in England. This team was bred by a relative of mine, who is a great amateur in the coaching line, and is thought to be the best team in Australasia. His place, Queenhoo Hall, is only fifteen miles off. He is a connection by marriage, therefore we don't stand on ceremony. I suspect he is giving his team an airing before driving them to the Elwick races next month, where he always turns out in great style. You will not have a dull evening, for his wife and a niece or two are sure to have accompanied him. In passing through the outer hall, such an amount of mirthful conversation reached the ear as led to the belief in Mr. Blunt's mind that either the number of the squire's nieces had been understated, or that, according to the custom of the country, the coach had been reinforced on the way. So it proved to be. The hall was apparently half full of men and maidens, and to whom had been added a few married people, as well as a couple of subalterns from a regiment then quartered in Hobart. The chaperons were not noticeably older than their unmarried charges, so that the expectation of a dance was fully justified. Mr. Blunt was introduced to the squire, as he was universally called, as also to his nieces, two attractive-looking girls, and of course to all the other people, civil and military. He felt as he once did in the west of Ireland, where he accepted so many invitations to spend a month 
that the number of months would have had to be increased if he had not more than a year in which to keep holiday. He complimented the squire, with obvious sincerity, on his wonderful team, and promised, strictly reserving compliance until after the flotation of the great mining company, to visit him at Queenhoo Hall in the summer-time now approaching. The dinner and the dance were replicas of those he had enjoyed at Hollywood. Here he had another opportunity of admiring the lovely complexions, graceful figures, and perfect grace and fleetness of the daughters of the land in the waltz or galop, and when he started for Hobart soon after sunrise, the drive through the fresh morning air dispelled all feelings of weariness, which, under the circumstances, he might have felt after hearing the cock crow two mornings running before going to bed. Heaven knows how long this sort of thing might have lasted if that letter of Tregonwell's had not turned up last night, he told himself. There is a time for all things, and if I do not mistake, it is high time now, as our pastors and masters used to say, to make a stern division between work and play. Poculatum est, condemnatum est. So, nunc est agendum, in good earnest. Hobart, reached two hours before the coach could have drawn up before the post office, reassured him as to Mr. Derricker's guarantee holding good. A cab from the nearest stand bore him and his luggage to the Tasmanian Club, where, freed from the distractions of country houses, he was able to collect his thoughts before attacking the great array of letters and papers which met his eye when he entered his room. A copy of the morning paper, reposing on the dressing-table, disclosed the fact in an aggressive headline that the proprietary Tasmanian Comstock and Associated Silver Mines Company Limited was already launched upon the Australian mining world, and indeed upon that of Europe and the universe generally. The directors of this magnificent silver property, which includes the original Comstock claim, amalgamated with the Associated Silver Mines Company, we understand, wrote the fluent pen of the editor of the Tasmanian Times, have at length succumbed to outside pressure, and in the interest of the British and colonial public, consented to form these mines of unparalleled richness into a company. The directors are Messrs. Valentine Blunt, Frampton Tregonwell, and Charles Herbert, and John Westerfield Clark, names which will assure the shareholders of honourable and straightforward dealing at the hands of those to whom their pecuniary interests are committed. These names are well and favourably known in England, in Mexico, in the United States of America, and the Dominion of Canada. Comment is superfluous, they speak for themselves. Wherever gold or silver mining is carried on, the names of Clark and Tregonwell are familiar as household words, and always associated with skilled treatment and successful operations. That this enterprise will have a beneficial effect not only upon the mining, but on the commercial and all other industries of Tasmania, lifting her with her fertile soil, her equable climate, her adaptability for all agricultural and pastoral products, to her proper place in the front rank of Australian colonies, no sane man can henceforth doubt. A line of steamers from Strand to Hobart, a short though expensive railway, and a metalled coach road, are among the indispensable enterprises which Mr. Tregonwell assured a representative would be commenced without delay. Advance Tasmania! Looking hastily through the pile of unopened letters, but keeping private and confidential, appearing correspondence strictly apart, and relegating those in Mr. Tregonwell's bold, rapid handwriting to a more convenient season, 
he started and trembled as his eye fell upon a letter in Mrs. Bruce's handwriting, which bore the Maronda postmark. His heart almost stopped beating when an enclosed note fell out, still more likely to affect his inmost soul. Yes, it was in the handwriting, so closely scanned, so dearly treasured in the past, of Imogen Carrisforth. For the moment, a spasm of regret, even remorse, affected him painfully. He stood self-convicted by his conscience of having lingered in frivolous social enjoyment, while uncertain of the welfare and feelings of one who had aroused the deepest emotions of his being. Nor had he, with shame he reflected, taken all possible means to discover to what circumstance it was that his letters had been apparently treated with indifference or contempt. Mrs. Bruce's letter gave an explanation, which, though not fully comprehensive, cleared up a part of the mystery, as far as Imogen was concerned. It ran as follows. Dear Mr. Blunt, I am afraid you must have thought us a very ill-mannered set of people, as it seems by your letter of blank, that you have not received any answer to your letters written the night before you left Unjo for Melbourne. Yet it was scarcely our fault. That poor lad who was drowned in the flood, which rose on the very day you left, carried answers from me and Imogen. These, I think, you would have considered friendly, and even in a sense apologetic for my husband's attitude in condemning you unheard. We both scolded him soundly, for deciding your case so hastily, in disregard of the laws of evidence. He, particularly, who is looked upon as the best magistrate on the Maronda bench. We got him to hear reason at last, and to write expressing regret that he had made no allowance for your ignorance of our bush population, and their ways with stock. This letter was in the bags of the mail-coach to Warunga, but it also was lost when two horses were drowned at Garlung, the bridge being six feet under water. None of the passengers were injured, but the coach was swept down the stream with the mail-bags, which have not been recovered. It certainly was a most unlucky occurrence for all concerned. When your letter from Melbourne arrived, poor Imogen was laid up with a bad attack of influenza, from the effects of which she was confined to bed for several weeks, her lungs having been attacked and pneumonia supervening, so that what with nursing her and Mr. Bruce having left on a three-month trip to Queensland, all correspondence was suspended for a while. She was very nearly dying, and in fact was given up by two out of three of the doctors who attended her. Her good constitution pulled her through, and she has regained her former health, though not her spirits, poor girl. Then, after she was up, all these accounts of your wonderful success in Tasmania, and large fortune derived from the Tasmanian silver mine, I can't recollect its name, were circulated in the district. On account of this, she did not write, as I wanted her to do, fearing, very foolishly as I told her, lest you might think her influenced by your altered fortunes. She is not that sort of girl, I can safely assert. The man who touched her heart would remain there installed, for richer, for poorer, till death's parting hour. Whether you have said more to her than she has told me, she is very reserved about herself, I cannot say. I have written fully, perhaps too much so, as to which I trust to your honour. But my sole intention has been to clear up all doubts on your part as to the feeling which actuates us as a family about the past misunderstanding. I enclose a scrap which she gave me reluctantly. Yours sincerely, Hildegard Bruce. Mr. Blunt picked up the half-sheet of notepaper, 
which having kissed reverently, and indeed twice repeated the action, he read as follows. Very faint and irregular were the characters. What a chapter of accidents since you left. Poor Johnny Doyle drowned. My letter and Hilda's lost. Your reply also never came. My illness, in which I was like to die, following closely. We thought you had left without troubling to answer our letters. At least they did. My sister has written you sheets, so I need not enlarge upon matters. Edward is still in Queensland. The weather is lovely now, after the cold winter. If you can tear yourself away from Hobart, you might see what Miranda looks like in the early summer. Yours truly, Imogen. Mr. Blunt's reply, by telegram, was sent with no unnecessary loss of time. Leaving for Melbourne and Miranda by tomorrow's steamer. Other letters, papers, circulars, requests, invitations and shoals lay ready for inspection. All the tentative appeals, complimentary and otherwise, which track the successful individual in war or peace, law, letters or commerce. A large proportion of these were transmitted to the waste paper basket, a piece of furniture now rendered necessary by the volume of Mr. Blunt's correspondence. He felt inclined to burn the whole lot, excepting those relative to the development of the Tasmanian Comstock and Associated Silver Mines Company, Limited, now stamped on a score of large and portentous envelopes. Making a final search, a letter was detached from a superincumbent mass, the superscription of which had the Tumut and Bunjil postmarks. This was sufficient to arrest his attention. The handwriting, too, was that of Sheila Maguire, whose interest in his welfare did not seem to have declined. Dear Mr. Blunt, I little thought when I used to get up at all hours to make you comfortable in our back block shanty that this humble individual was ministering, that's a good word, isn't it? I've been reading up at odd times, to the wants of a director of the great Comstock Silver Mines Company. What a lark it seems, doesn't it? And you that didn't know the difference between quartz and alluvial then. Shows what a fine country Australia is. When a gentleman may be nearly run in for duffing one month, and the next have all the world bowing and scraping to him as a millionaire. That's not my line, though, is it? The money, if you had ten times as much, wouldn't make Sheila Maguire more your friend, your real friend, than she is now. The other way on, if anything. And there's a young lady down the river, not that I even myself with her, only she's a cornstalk, one of the same brand as the saying is. She don't mind the dirty money. Any fool can come by that, or any man that's contented to live like a black fellow and save farthings till they mount up. He can't help it. But who'd take him with his muck-rake? Great book, Pilgrim's Progress, isn't it? Just fell across it. What the devil's the girl driving at? I hear you say. That's not much of a swear for Bunjil, is it? Well, you'll see about it in the postscript by and by. First and foremost, I want a hundred shares in the great Comstock Associated. On the ground floor. Original, like the Broken Hill Proprietary. An uncle of mine, old Barney Maguire, of Black Dog Creek, died a month ago, and left us boys and girls five thousand apiece. He couldn't read and write, but he had ten thousand acres of good freehold land, river flats too, and a tidy herd of cattle. Everyone knows the B.M. brand. Some good horses too. Comes of saving and screwing. He lived by the creek bank in an old bark hut with two rooms, never married, and never gave one of us boys and girls the value of a neck ribbon or a saddle strap while he was alive. I'm sending a cheque for the scrip, 
so make your secretary post them at once. As you're a director, you'll have to sign your real name, so I'll know what it is. I never was sure of the other. You're born lucky, and I'm going to back you right out. Perhaps I am too, and might rise in life, who knows. I'm going to work up my education on the chance. What I learned at She-Oak Flat will stick to me, so we'll see. And now for the postscript. I looked it out, derived from postscriptum, written after. Never thought what P.S. meant before. Easy enough when you know, isn't it? End of chapter 8, part 1